Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 45, Chapter 4. This is an independently produced podcast. We have no corporate backer. It instead relies on you, the listener. If you are enjoying this project, then I would like to ask you to sign up for membership. It only costs $4.99 per month and allows me to make this show for you. It will also give you access to exclusives, such as our premium series on the Aztecs, with a new episode out every two weeks. If you are interested, just go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and click on the PayPal subscription button. Special thanks to our newest pioneers, listeners Laurie, Forrest, Linda, and Matthew. Thanks guys, I couldn't do the show without you. I've mentioned a couple of times now how I like to think about the podcast in terms of chapters. Chapter 1 was episodes 1 through 17, the founding of Virginia. We covered Virginia from the founding of Jamestown through to Bacon's Rebellion. Chapter 2 was episodes 18 to 35. This covered the Pilgrim Fathers and the founding of Plymouth, and then the creation of the other New England colonies, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, until the early 1640s. Chapter 3 was episodes 36 through 44. This was when we introduced the Dutch into the narrative, and we covered the rise and fall of New Netherland, also including the rather bizarre case of New Sweden. We ended two weeks ago with the Dutch ceding the region to England in exchange for the Spice Island of Run. This created two new colonies, New York and Delaware. You might have been expecting me to cover the early years of these two in this episode, but we're not quite there yet. This is why I want to go back and begin catching up the rest of New England with New York and Delaware, as we left them both in 1664. This is why, today, we begin Chapter 4. This has been one of the stranger episodes to work on. Usually, episode scripts come very easily to me, but this one has taken over a month. I completely gave up on it twice. Basically, over the process of writing the last 44 episodes, I lost track slightly of the big picture. What that resulted in was an episode which took up the yearly goings-on in Plymouth Colony. However, it was very different to the earlier episodes on Plymouth. It wasn't that interesting and was very hard to follow. So, rather than resuming exactly where we were, which would have been Plymouth Colony in 1628, I want to instead begin thinking seriously about the big picture. This is a history of the whole United States, and getting lost in the minutiae of what is essentially a single city would mean that we'd find it difficult to see the forest for the trees. I'm just saying this so that you can understand my mindset for this particular episode, in case it seems oddly quick for me. I'm not in any way abandoning the sharp detail which I feel characterises this podcast, but I feel it's very important that we don't let unnecessary detail take away from the main story. This might not be obvious listening to this episode, but I have hidden away on my computer what we shall refer to as the Lost Episode 45, which is so awful 
that I couldn't bring myself to record it, and there is no way I'm ever releasing it. The obvious differences between this episode 45 and the other one makes the point a bit clearer than the episode might do just on its own. But that's enough of an introduction, let's just get back into the history. We last left Plymouth in 1628, at a rather interesting moment in its history. The colony, you'll recall, had a great deal of trouble with funding itself. The first wave of colonisation is a very exciting moment for investors. It gives them a chance to get in on the ground floor, as they say. It's very difficult to be second into a new market. This is fine, but it also meant that there was a desire for quick profits. Gold mines or something similar. New England was not suited to quick profits. It did have many opportunities for wealth creation. It would have a thriving whaling industry. It could produce ships, and the region's fast-flowing streams could be used to harness energy. There was also plenty of iron in the bogs of the area. It was low quality, but it was useful for household objects, as it was far cheaper than importing it from England. New England wasn't a great agricultural centre, but it could produce food. All these were valuable, but they would take time for these industries to develop, and people were impatient. While the Pilgrims set up their colony, they struggled to get people to keep funding it for the early years, with their investors constantly funding new projects and new colonies, instead of sticking with Plymouth. These never worked, of course. There is an appropriate Simpsons quote which Steve, over at the History of the Papacy podcast, sent me about Christopher Newport, but it works here too. Oh, mama! This is finally really happening. After years of disappointment with get-rich-quick schemes, I know I'm going to get rich with this scheme, and quick! It's painfully on the nose. So, after continual rebuffs from London merchants, the Pilgrims bought themselves, legally in the name of eight senior figures in the colony, William Bradford, Miles Standish, Isaac Allerton, Edward Winslow, William Brewster, John Hovland, John Alden, and Thomas Prentz. Plymouth was rather unique as a self-owning colony, although this didn't end their difficulties with London. Allerton sailed over to London as he represented Plymouth, and then he abused his position before being fired and expelled from the colony after a couple of years for gross incompetence. In 1630, a patent was given to Bradford, the governor, securing the possession of the land, but he transferred this patent to the colony itself in 1640. The only thing Plymouth lacked was a royal charter, and in 1630 it spent £500 trying to acquire one, but, thanks to Allison, it was never approved. I cannot overestimate the importance of Allison's untrustworthiness, as it made the process of paying off the loans used by the colonists to free themselves from the London merchants infinitely more complicated. We have Bradford's complaints preserved. It would take until March 1646 for the debt to be finally paid off. Over the course of the 1630s, more and more settlers arrived in New England. 
We've dealt previously with how this began the westward push that would so define America, and how it began with the setting up of several other colonies, such as Connecticut and Rhode Island. It also altered Plymouth and the way the colony was structured. You see, Plymouth had for the first 10 years or so of its existence been essentially a city-state. There was only one settlement in the colony, Plymouth. That was where everybody lived and where everything took place. But as more people arrived, it was only natural that several other smaller satellite settlements sprang up around Plymouth. This began around 1630, but over time the process was formalised and these small clusters of housing developed into townships. These were formally organised. Skittoate in 1636, Duxbury in 1637, Taunton, Sandwich, Barnstable and Yarmouth in 1639, and then Marshfield in 1640. Within a few years, the political layout of Plymouth had altered. The direct democracy that had worked for the past two decades was no longer possible, and so in 1639 a change was made. The colony became the Plymouth Republic, a representative democracy. Plymouth was the capital and was the seat of the assembly. It would have four seats, and each of the other townships would have two. There were two houses, the lower made up of deputies, and the upper of the governor and his seven assistants. The 1630s had seen a great deal of domestic upheaval within the Republic, but even greater changes were happening externally. The most obvious factor is Massachusetts Bay, the larger and more powerful colony which had appeared directly to the north. Connecticut, too, was emerging to the west. Relations were not exactly hostile. Religious differences between the colonies faded over time, and they had a similar perspective economically. The greater resources of Massachusetts livened up the area and helped stimulate the Plymouth economy. There was, though, some underlying tension. It could not be forgotten that the development of the new colonies altered the regional balance of power. Plymouth had long been the most organised force in the region. It had been Standish and the Pilgrims that dealt with Thomas Morton at Mount Mary only a couple of years previously. But this changed. In 1634 there was a legal issue to do with Pilgrim trade, but Massachusetts took legal action, despite the affair being out of their jurisdiction. The message was loud and clear. Plymouth had become a junior colony. It was no longer THE English settlement between Canada and Virginia. It was one of many, and not a particularly important one at that. The problem was exacerbated the next year, when the Plymouth settlement of Windsor was taken by Connecticut. There was very little Plymouth could do about the situation. Economically, the town should be considered a success. It had a slow beginning. In 1621, its population was 86. This had increased to 180 
1624, and then about 300 by 1630. This reflected the slow economic beginning, as the pilgrims set up the basis of their agriculture and industries, and of securing their independence. It was only during the migration period of the 1630s that the population seriously began to increase at a steady rate, reaching about 3,000 by 1644. No great wealth was created in Plymouth, but there were a lot of small industries, the fisheries were productive, and there was work in agriculture and lumber production. The pilgrims were comfortable. That, in of itself, is notable. We'll see, for much of history in the American story, that it would take a long time for the majority of the population to reach economic comfort. Life in the 17th century was hard, and it was no small achievement for a group of individuals, particularly in an urban settlement, to set up a representative democracy, govern themselves, and secure some degree of prosperity. Plymouth showed the way. It was the foundation of New England, but it was destined to be absorbed into the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, to whom we shall turn next time. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then please consider signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. It's not the only way to help out, though. I'm extremely grateful for anybody who leaves an iTunes review, for example. You can follow us on various social media. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, Twitter, at historyjamie, Instagram, at Jamie Redfern, YouTube, youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast, and you can always send me an email if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. The address is the history of podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.